Well, good morning, everyone. Once again, thank you for being here. As I was sharing with Fred, where's Fred? Oh, he may have gone to practice or whatever, but the water of the Spirit flows in us very often in relation to how much we will turn on the faucet of the Word of God. You know what I mean? And so our commitment to God's Word personally and corporately is our putting our hands on the faucet and turning it and God's Spirit is cooperating with that turning as we together turn it. But he doesn't turn it unilaterally. He uses our hands and we submit to his work in turning on the faucet of the word. And so as we do that personally and we do it corporately, what happens when we, assuming you have good pipes, and you don't live in New Orleans. <laughs> what happens when we turn on the faucet? The water begins to flow out. And the more you turn the faucet on, the more water comes out. And so if you are experiencing dryness in your life or a lack of some kind of an understanding of the favor of God and the experience of the favor of God, turn on the faucet of the word. Allow the Holy Spirit to do what Jesus said in John 7, the spirit had not yet been given because out of your innermost being, remember, will come what? Rivers of living water. And he was talking about the spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. But he has been glorified. The spirit has been given. And God wants us to regularly turn on the faucet of the word. So let me say thank you this morning for turning on the faucet of the word. And let me do one more thing. It is incredible to me, and I had to be very careful about my fleshly attitude in this, because sometimes I can cop an attitude. I know none of you know that, but I can cop an attitude. And how many of you parents know that if your child doesn't do right, you cop an attitude? You cop an attitude. You just have to bring it to a place of applying it correctly. But it's real easy to cop an attitude when your child is not doing the right thing. And so I hear people regularly say, come to the school of the word. Well, you know, you just don't understand. You then, And I'm going to say this quietly, but I feel like yelling and then screaming it out. I stand at the window this morning in our prayer time. And I see an RTA bus drive up into our lot, a handicapped bus. Out of that bus gets a beat-up lady, gets out, a beat-up lady, who has been in the hospital at death more times than I can count, who a couple of weeks ago fell down into the street and bruised and banged herself up finally was able to get back into her house and then the next week got the bus came back in here for the word of God in the morning amen, amen. oh that the church would be filled with that 
kind of gutsy determination that I will not give in to the schemes of the devil, whatever they are, whatever I call them, whatever the world says they must be, I will not give in to the schemes of the devil, but I will press through and turn on the water of the word of God in my life. Amen? Amen. I just had to say that this morning. Thank you for being here. And I don't say that casually, nor do I say it perfunctorily. I say it because I just feel. You know, you ever feel God inside of you? I feel the pleasure of God over your commitment to him and over his commitment to you. Let's continue to be like that, and let's do what we do for Alpha. If there's anything in this church that is happening that causes people to be excited and evangelistic, it's Alpha, and that is what it should be. Let's, however, be regularly and equally evangelistic and excited about saying to people, you need to come to the School of the Word. So let me give you a quick overview of what's happening. This week and next week, we'll continue to teach on this subject, prophet, priest, and king. We're going to stop next week on May 1st. Is May 1st next week? Yeah, May 1st. We're going to do next Sunday, Sunday school. Then the following is the 8th. We're going to have a prayer time in the morning. You know how normally we do that. Then beginning on, I think it's the 15th, whatever it is, Evan May is coming in here and is going to begin to teach four or whatever Sundays in a row. I'll do one of them. He'll be out of town. Four or whatever Sundays in a row concerning Islam. You may have been seeing some of that, and you'll hear it this morning. Please come. Please come. Please come. At the end of that series, then we'll come back in here and I want to summarize what we have been saying and apply all that we have been saying to what does this role of God within himself, the roles of the persons of God within himself, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, remember prophet, priest, and king, each one of the persons of God fulfilling one of those roles. What does all that have to do with the church, and how is the church to work that out? It will be an extremely significant one or two Sundays. We'll talk about the church's responsibility to manifest, to image God in our community, the community of God, through roles and through the character of God. And then we'll talk about husbands and wives how husbands and wives are to be imaging that so that at least we can take this whole series and take it in a way not only as an academic exercise and something we've learned about God, but that we can allow the Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives. So having learned about something about God's personhood, now we can begin to what? Manifest and live out God's personhood among the persons of the church. Amen. So that's what we want to do. So that'll be what's happening. Father, thank you so much. All I can say in all of this is how awesome you are. How kind and good and gracious you are. To so unselfishly create. In the beginning, God created. Knowing ahead of time the cost 
but yet the joy of having a people <clears throat> in whom and with whom you, Father, would share yourself with us by the Son and through the Spirit. What a God. What a God you are. Father, continue to anoint us, our speech and our listening and our living for your glory so that everyone with whom we come in contact under whatever circumstance may know that you are the God of glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, as we continue to consider the role of the Spirit, Remember, we've done the role of the Father, we've done the role of the Son, and then this morning we're doing the role of the Spirit. Next week, what I'm going to do is hopefully be able to wrap together and to bring all of this together and talk about the character of God that makes possible the functioning of these three equal, divine, distinct persons who function in roles in a way that creates the unity and the harmony within God so that God is called one. Remember Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we'll talk about the character of God or the way God or the reason God is able to be who he is. Not just three persons doing something, but three persons doing something in a way that causes God to be who he is, therefore is the very basis for who we are in the church. And so now as we consider the role of the Spirit, we're going to remember this, and everyone, this is true for each person of the Trinity, that the Spirit is fully God, what? Within himself, but not by himself. Please remember that. Each person of the Trinity is fully God within himself, but not by himself. And so that means that every, each person of the Trinity is fully God in all that it means to be divine. Anything that you can think of that has to do with the intrinsic personhood of God is true of each person. And each person is equal. There is no such thing as one person being more important than the other. There is an absolute, pure, eternal equality among the persons of God. <clears throat> Why do I emphasize this? Because when we get into the way the church is to function, we are going to begin to see the necessity of understanding the persons of God who they are and how they function and in the basis of their character in order to fulfill the image given mandate that God has given to the church so we will be able to function that way also and to be able to evaluate our personal walk and our corporateness in relation to who God is. So we, this is why I continually to emphasize the same thing over and over again. So automatically it becomes part of you. It becomes part of you. It just becomes who, what you know about God because you've heard it so often. And so equally, equally with the Father, the Spirit is equal with the Father and with the Son, possessing the very same nature, attributes, knowledge, power, will, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, as with the Father and the Son, the Spirit is a distinct person as indicated by his several titles. Look at some of the titles that, is given, that are given to the Spirit in the Word of God. He's called the Spirit of God. He's called God's Spirit. 
He's called the Spirit of the Lord. He's called Jesus' Spirit. He's called my Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Christ. And so you see there is a distinction in the Bible. In the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, and the Spirit of God did what? Hovered or vibrated over the waters. Remember that? The Spirit of God was there with God, and the Word of God was there because in verse 3 it says, let there be light. And so you see God, God the Father, remember what we said, most of the time in the Old Testament when the Bible says God, it, I'm sorry, in the New Testament it means God the Father. In the Old Testament it can mean God the Father, but typically it would have to do with God the Spirit who is the person of God who is at work in the world applying the Word of God which is the person of Christ. And isn't that a mystery how we try to understand all that? But looking at it we just discern what the Spirit gives us and move along. As an equal with the Father and with the Son, the Spirit's role is to carry out the Father's will in the incarnation and to apply that incarnational reality and the, 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 uh, the fulfillment of God's will in the incarnation. Whatever Jesus fulfilled in the incarnation, then the Spirit's role is to apply that role. So the Spirit's role in the Old Testament is to do the will of God upon the earth as we see that. You'll see it. The Spirit of God did this. The Spirit of God did that. But in the incarnation now, the Spirit has a specific task of ministering the will of God with the, to the person of the incarnate Son. And then after the incarnation, the earthly incarnation, you had the eternal incarnation, the heavenly man the Son of Man, remember, standing. And now the, then the Spirit of God still ministers the work of the eternal heavenly man until the consummation of the age. So you still have that work of the Spirit. So let's talk about the incarnation, how the role, what the role of the Spirit is in the incarnation. Now, do you remember what the incarnation is? It's explained to us in John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember, the Word became flesh. The Word was God in John 1.1, became flesh. That's the incarnation. So if you're not sure of the term, it means the enfleshment. It means that the eternal Son of God, the eternal Son, took upon himself the humanity of Jesus so that in this man Jesus you have the, the uh, Son of God and the human man Jesus dwelling together in the same person, dwelling together. I, don't, can't, I can't explain that. I'm not even about to try to explain that. We just go with it because God says it. So let's look at the role of the Spirit in the incarnation. What is the role of the Spirit? What does He do during the incarnation? First of all, the incarnation occurs, why? Because of the Spirit. Remember what happened. Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel. Remember that? And he says, hail, favorite of God. Said, who, who are you talking to? Who, me? You are blessed. Why? Because you are going to conceive a child. And in Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin. How in the world is this going to happen? Because I'm not even married. 
I haven't been intimate with a man. And then the angel explains, the spirit of God will come upon you and cause you to conceive. So the spirit's role in the incarnation initially conceives into the womb of Mary the son so he becomes incarnate in the womb of Mary at the conception of Mary. That's the work of the spirit. The incarnate son then, you remember, years later, is anointed to carry out the father's will by the spirit. Remember, years later, Jesus is about 30 years old. And he goes to the River Jordan. And John is baptizing at the River Jordan. And John sees this man coming. He knows who he is. That's my cousin Jesus. I've been away from home, but I know who he is. But he doesn't know who he is essentially. And you remember in John, the Gospel of John, the Baptist, John the Baptist tells us, well, I knew who he was. Why? Because God told me that this is the one, the Lamb of God. And so when Jesus approaches to be baptized, John says what? You should be baptized. Me, I baptize you. There's no Jesus says, let it be so in order to fulfill what? All righteousness. And we talked about what all righteousness meant a while back. We won't go back through that. And so Jesus comes up out of the water, and what happens? The voice of the Father. Now, when you look at the Bible, you so rarely hear the voice of the Father. I would have to go back and make a purposeful study of the Old Testament just to find out when the voice of the Father personally spoke into the realm of humanity. But in the New Testament, he does it twice. And so we hear the voice of the Father saying what? You or this, depending on Luke or Matthew, is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So what happened? It was the spirit whom God sent to anoint Jesus for the inauguration of the ministry to which he was incarnate. And so the spirit begins the ministry of Jesus. You remember that. The Spirit came upon him as a dove. It was through the role of the Spirit that the Son of God offered himself unto death. Remember in Hebrews 9.14. He offered himself by the eternal Spirit. So even Jesus' ability, even the incarnate Son's ability to go to the cross was because of the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. You remember what we said last week? The Son of God became incarnate as the submitted Son to do the Father's will by the leading administration of the Spirit in his life. And we talked about that, that what we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus, the incarnate Son, we're not looking at the exercise of the Son's unilateral, personal, intrinsic authority and divinity operating. We're looking at him having, what? Emptied himself. Remember Philippians 2. He emptied himself of the use of this prerogative, his divinity, and submitted himself, as we all must, to the authoritative leading of the Spirit. So what Jesus says and what he does and where he goes is according to the leading of the Spirit. 
And so we have this. The Spirit is in the incarnation to be the Father's submitted agent in ministering to the incarnate Son as He submits to the Spirit's leading. Therefore, the Spirit's role was to glorify the Father during the incarnation. Wow. He glorifies the Father as he leads the Son to do the will of the Father, to which the Son cooperates through his submission. So we see in John 13, 31 to 32, now is the Son of Man, Jesus is speaking, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. What does it mean? It is, God is manifested as to his personhood and as to his character in who Jesus is and what Jesus is about to do. God is manifested in this submission of Jesus by the Spirit and in the Spirit's submission to the Father's will. The Father is glorified. He is manifested as being the authoritative source of the Trinity and his character, which we'll talk about next week, I don't want to get in today, is manifested in this activity of distinct roles. That's what it means when it says the Father is glorified. If God is glorified in him, in the Son, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Then remember in John 17, 1, when Jesus is praying in the garden, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so again, the Father desires to be manifested, desires his personhood and his character and the Trinity to be manifested among his people. Why? Why does God want himself to be manifested? Why? Why does God want to, if you would, and I'll say it this way, we, we may have some trouble thinking about it that way, but why does God like to brag about himself? Why? Isn't bragging wrong? I mean, if you brag about yourself, would we say that's humility? Well, why can God brag about himself and it not be a problem? I mean, if I can't, man, Peter Davidson, Lester, is an incredible pastor. You just, oh, man, when you meet with him, whew, God moves. Just meet with him and God will answer everything for you. Say, wow, that's a little heady. Mm -hmm. would, you, would you accept that as a posture of humility? Anybody in here would accept that as a posture of humility? Why can God do it? Why can Jesus get away with it? Why? Somebody tell me. It's the truth. You see, humility isn't anything but an expression of the truth in truth and by truth sometimes we forget that don't you so a great pianist no, 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 no. you can play the, oh no I can't really play the piano no well of course I can play the piano this is true now if he gives the credit to himself but he can play the piano it is a truth and so God brags upon himself why because he is the only one worth bragging upon because this is who he is. And thank God this is who he is because we have been created to be the vessels of his bragging and boasting. So what does the word bless the Lord of my soul mean? It means to boast and to brag upon God. Why? 
because God loves the boasting of his children just like any father loves to have his children say, my dad, my mom is great. Any of you opposed to hearing that? How many of you are pleased to hear when your child really thinks you're great and wonderful? Well, a few of you anyway. That's good. Thank you. You see, finally, the incarnate son was raised by the Spirit. I know by the Father, but by the Spirit and the Father. Listen to Romans 8, 11. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So it was the submitted work of the Spirit, the loving, respectful submission of the Spirit. Remember, I repeated those three words last week, and we're going to get into a lot more of that next week. And these are three words that must undergird our understanding of God, but undergird us and infuse us as to the way we live in the church. Loving, respectful submission. There is not a soul who has been born into God's kingdom who is above and exempt from being a person who must exercise, if we're going to properly image God, loving, respectful submission the highest person in the hierarchy of the church to the lowest person, if you would. I don't like that, but you understand what I mean by that in the church. Every single person in Christ, no matter what the function of that person, the role of that person is in the church, if we are going to be imaging God correctly and manifesting and carrying out the mandates of the gospel clearly and truthfully, we must be a loving, respectful, submitted person. Amen? That goes from the highest to the lowest. That goes from left to right. Everybody is included in that. No one is exempt from that. Why? Why? Because you see, each person of the Trinity exercises his role within the context of loving, respectful submission. Now, submission for the Father is going to be termed a little differently next week, so I'm not going to call it submission, but just to generalize that today. What is the role of the Spirit in our sanctification? Well, at the resurrection, remember the incarnate Son, after the resurrection of Jesus, the incarnate Son, the role of the Spirit is to apply the finished work. Where do we know it's finished? Where do we see that word? It is finished. John what? 1930. Know the word. Know where the word is. Know where these words are. John 1930, Jesus said what? It is finished. All the work of God. What work of God? What work of God? The work from the very beginning verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All of that, from that point, all the way through, Jesus has now completely fulfilled the creative purpose of God. It is finished. It is completed the work of God that he initiated in the creation but the fall interrupted it and then God moved to reestablish it and bring it back Jesus has fulfilled in himself and by himself all that the Old Testament is speaking about and is anticipating in the coming of the Messiah all of it is wrapped up and gathered up in this one man at the cross and in his death and in his resurrection, all of it. Only thing that needs to be, if you would, finished in a different way 
is to bring it to the grand conclusion in his return. He's done it all. Everything's done. And so what God is doing now is allowing that finished work of his son to be playing out upon the earth in his image-bearing nation, the church, until Jesus returns and then the consummation of the age, the new heaven and the new earth, which we see in Revelation 21 and 22, will then completely bring it to manifested fruition. Get it? Manifested fruition. He's finished it. But we need to, and we're waiting for what? The manifested fruition. Does that make sense to you? We're not waiting for Jesus to do something else. He's done it all. We're merely walking with God and flowing in his work toward the manifesting. So between now and the manifested fruition, God is displaying what that work of Jesus looks like during this age. So as he brings it to a consummation in the final age, we will be able to rejoice with great exceeding joy. Amen. So after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit, you see, begins to apply the finished work. Remember the day of Pentecost. So what does that look like? Well, let's look at Ezekiel 36, 25, 27. Some of you already know this. That passage, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, explains the role of the Spirit in our salvation. Our salvation is God bringing the finished work of his Son into his people's lives so his people may be able to be the living embodiment of who Christ was and who Christ is and what he has done, that we may be that living embodiment. I the verse says, the Lord, we're talking about the Lord God, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be very careful to obey my rules. This is written sometime after the Babylonian captivity begins and before it ends. It began in 586. It ends in 536, somewhere around there. So it's, it's in those intervening years. This is when that is written. Well, this is the prophecy that, prophecy, remember, that Jesus was alluding to in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, the priest who comes to him by night? And by the way, please disavow yourself, I think, of that thing that he came to Jesus by night because he was a scaredy cat. He was skulking around. This is not true. Look at Nicodemus. He wants the body of Jesus. He talks to the Sanhedrin about what is this, right or not. He, he's not that way. But you see, John is playing night and light back and forth. He comes by night. He is a man who is, if you would, even a teacher of the Jews, he's a man who is living in the night. He's living in darkness until the light of the world can shine upon him. So you had those contrasting issues of light and darkness you remember in the Gospel of John, in the letter of John. So it's more that than he was afraid to come to Jesus during the day because someone may say something about him. Secondly, how do you have a normal conversation with Jesus when there are thousands of people around him? So I think it's better to understand that as an issue of John contrasting light and darkness. He comes as a man of darkness. He's not saved. He doesn't understand the word. He doesn't know really who Jesus is. He knows something's going on, 
but he doesn't understand it. And so he comes and says, you know, we know you must be from God because nobody can do these kinds of works. And Jesus talks to him about being born again. And Jesus, Nicodemus said, well, are you kidding? How can a man be born again? Well, he's not asking a question. Well, let me think how that can happen. I think he's being sarcastic. Are you kidding? How can a man be born again? What are you telling me? What kind of a work is that? I think sometimes the way these things have been presented have been a little off base, at least as far as I can tell. Let's just accept that for me, I suppose. Jesus answered him, truly I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember, it's night. How can you see at night? See, you, you get this play in words. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? Frank, I'm not even going to tell him the experience in the train. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See, enter. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. Remember the wind. Where do you see that? Ezekiel 37. The Ruach of God say to these bones, the breath of God. And the breath of God, as he speaks the word, begins to put the bones together, and they stood as a great army. And finally, the breath of God causes them to be a living army. The breath, the Ruach, the Spirit of God is what Jesus says. Nobody can be born again until the Spirit of God comes upon you. This is the work of the Spirit, the submitted Spirit to the Father's will. So do not marvel that I said, you know, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, you do not know where it comes from, where it goes, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So when does that happen? When does that happen? Born of the water and the, what, what did it say? Born of the water and the what? What did it say? Born of the water and the what? Spirit. Say it again. I, I see it here. He cannot born of water and the what? Spirit. What, what does the water mean? What does the water mean? What water? What water? Water. Well, it must mean physical birth, the, the water of the woman. That, that's not even a concept in the Bible. It's never said. Jesus is referring to something that's already been stated. Where do you see the water and the spirit together? In Ezekiel 36. Remember? Sprinkle what on you? What? Water. Water. And the spirit. It's the active work of the spirit. The water of the word by the spirit. Do we see that? We get these other ideas. Well, it must be the woman's water because that's all I can. It's not that. Look anywhere in the Old Testament, and you will never see that kind of reference. Jesus is using references that these people know. That's why he says to Nicodemus, what, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know this stuff? It's the water. Sprinkle what? Clean water on you. The Spirit will come into you. You hear the Word of God. How does faith come? By what? Hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When we hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit is at work changing our hearts. The water of the Word is pouring into our ears by the Spirit, and the Spirit is using that water of the Word to begin to change our hearts, to change us from a hard heart to a new heart, right? That's how we get born again, to which when that happens, we're saying yes to Jesus. We're not saying, please, Jesus, save me so the Spirit will do it. We're saying yes to Jesus because the Spirit is doing it. Can you say amen? amen? You see, I didn't get here by birth and said, whew, I'm glad my mom and them had sex and I was born because I really asked them to do that. No, it was their choice, their work, and I'm the product of their work. 
and so will you, the product of the Father's work. Amen? By the Spirit, because the Son has purchased it. What happens on the day of Pentecost? Now, listen to the day of Pentecost in relation to being born again and in Ezekiel's prophecy of 36. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly they came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Man, the wind's bad today. I've just got my hair fixed. Look at the wind. <clears throat> I said that for someone. And suddenly they came from heaven, a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Titus, Paul calls this the spirit of sanctification. Spirit of sanctification. Let me take a moment to say something about sanctification. The word sanctification is from the Latin, which is from the Greek hagios, which is from the Hebrew kadesh. Sanctus, Latin, hagios, Greek, Hebrew, kadesh. The original was in the Hebrew. They translated into the Latin, I mean the Greek. And then Jerome, you may remember, translated into Latin. And then from all of these translations, we've done the English. That's the word sanctification. It means holy. Okay, what does it mean? It means holy. It means simply to be set aside as an object of place or person for God's personal use. The word to sanctify, to make holy, means to be set aside. No more common, which means what? Everyday use. Don't touch that. That's mine. Mine. Everything else, this is my stuff for my personal use and pleasure. My stuff. And this stuff now takes on a life and a character of who I am. And so you see that place, that time, that person, time, Sabbath, this is the day the Lord hath made. God sanctifies, brings it unto himself and declares, this is for me and to be about me. You get it? It's for me and to be what? About me. This is what holy means. It's for me and it's to be about me. It's for my use. About me. So when I use this place, this time, this object, this people, I am being displayed in this as the only unique being totally other than and superior to and eternally great and glorious. That's what you have in this issue of holiness. So this means that in saving us, the Spirit sanctifies us as God's personal people. We are saved by sanctification. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you, have, were, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may, why? Proclaim the excellencies of him who, what? Call you out of darkness unto his marvelous light. You see dark again, nighttime, daytime, light. Once you were not a people, that doesn't mean you were not a people in existence, but you were not a people of God. In a spiritual sense, you were not existing for the right purpose yet. But now you are God's people as a result of what? Having been born again by the Spirit of God. 
2 Peter 1, 3, 4. His divine power has granted unto us all things pertaining to what? Life and godliness through the knowledge of him, the knowledge of the word, of him who called us unto his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted unto us his precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. We are now sharers of that nature, fellowshipping in that nature. That's who we are as God's people. After we have been sanctified, the Spirit continues His ministry of sanctification in us. How? By conforming us to the image of God's Son. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Being saved, I thought we were already saved. That is not a biblical comment. I am saved, period. No. The Bible says this. You have been saved, you are saved, and you are what? Being saved. You see, salvation isn't a point in time. Salvation is a gathering of God's people unto himself for his particular purpose, which God begins at a particular time in our lives when we're born again. He knows it from all eternity. And yet it's, this, it's an ongoing process, if you would, of maturing and being transformed and conformed to the image of God's Son until we all get to heaven. And so the issue of salvation isn't something that, oh, I accepted Jesus, therefore I'm saved. And now, no. It began when we were born again, certainly. But it is a continuing work of sanctification in us, which many believers fail to remember. And as we began by grace through faith, where do I hear that? Who said that? For you have been saved through faith. Sorry, by, through, for you have been saved by grace through faith. Who said that? Where did he say it? Ephesians 2, 8. Is that what he says? And finish it? You've been saved by grace. Wow. Through faith. So we said yes to Jesus. When I was born again, the Spirit moved upon me. I wanted to be saved. I responded yes. I wasn't looking for Jesus and, hey, 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 whoo, whoo, here I am. Come. Oh, thank you, Peter, for calling upon me. Now I can save you. This is not what happened. It is he who saved me to which I responded, right? So I did that by faith. How did I get the faith? It is not of your own, but it is a gift of God, lest any man should crow, right? So, I am saved by God's grace, having been born again, the Spirit's work, and the Spirit then not only changed my heart, but then the Spirit at that same point is giving me the faith to say yes. Therefore, everyone upon whom and in whom the Spirit moves to birth, being born again, Everyone, may I repeat that one more time? Everyone on whom the Spirit moves in rebirth will be given faith to respond what? Yes. No one is left out or God said, man, I didn't know it was going to work in him. Jesus says, I have lost how many? Nobody. Amen? So when you share the gospel... Don't be so or too overly preoccupied with how you do it and when you do it and all of you're doing. Just be relaxed in sharing the gospel and trust the Holy Spirit because he is the one who's really working this. I'm not and you're not. 
Amen? And so if someone doesn't like it or leaves or gets upset, do not think, oh, I lost somebody, Donnie. I, they'll never be saved because I have not done it right or whatever. No, that's the Spirit's work. Aren't you glad the Spirit isn't tied to our inadequacy, inadequacies? Good night. We none be saved. So we, we're being conformed to the image of uh, God's Son. Therefore, the role in the Spirit in sanctifying us has two stages. The initial stage of our birth and the continuing stage of our maturity. And how is he doing this? Through the ministry of the Word of God. He's maturing us through the ministry of the Word of God. I'll just summarize this. In summary, what we have seen in the three persons of the Trinity in their three roles is this. The Father is the authoritative source who decrees our salvation. We're saved because the Father wants us to be saved. The Son is the obedient servant to the Father who purchases our salvation through his blood. And the Spirit is the obedient helper who applies the finished work of the Son to us in our salvation. Next week, we're going to talk about how can all this happen. Amen? Thanks so much.